0: How do you surf? How do you do that with 3% eyesight and charge waves like you do?
1: Surfing by feel is the most present you could possibly be because I, I f- everything's feel. So I take off on the wave, I stand up, on land I use a cane sometimes, and my front foot becomes my cane. So I go down the wave, I can feel how steep the front of the, wa- the wave is with my front foot, but it's all being 100% present with what's happening under my feet right now, you know, I never really knew that I was that different. Even though I was obviously very different to my to my friends, the way Dad approached it was, you know, y- you know, different. Where did your Dad learn that? It's a really good question, and no one's ever asked me that before.
2: Well, Portugal's Nazaré is home to some of the world's biggest and most dangerous waves, and over the weekend, Aussie surfer Matt Formston conquered the famous break by
1: riding a 12-meter monster. And what's extra amazing is he managed
2: it with just 3% vision, having lost most of his sight by the time he was five years old. So
0: we went to Sydney Eye Hospital and the professor there, he said, your son will never have an education, he'll never drive a car, he won't play sport, his life's finished. There's no such thing as barriers, there's only obstacles. With an obstacle, you either go over it or around it. You don't let it stop you. Is there anything you wouldn't have a crack at? Is that word again, can't. If yeah. anyone ever says can't to you, you're like, really? There was no way I was ever allowed to use that word in anything
1: we did in, my, in, my, in our house. Definitely wasn't able to use my vision as a reason why, why I wasn't able to do something. I ended up descending over 100 kilometers an hour when we were in Switzerland towards the end of my career. If you lean the wrong
0: direction, if I don't follow his weight through the corner, we're both dead. You can sit in a room and you can pick up when someone is not being present or they're fidgeting around. Especially in your case when you've lost sight, mm-hmm. you dial up the other senses.
1: The way I would describe it, it's like, it's like colours that are coming from a different area or magnetism as well. If you can imagine magnets are pulling or pushing.
0: Can you teach that to other people? How long can you hold your breath underwater? Oh
1: not now, but but just when I went to Nazareth, I could hold my breath for about six minutes.
0: Six minutes. Oh,
1: five minutes forty-seven, I think was my longest, yeah. For a single breath.
0: I don't know what to say on that. That's ridiculous. I didn't, but, but I didn't I know also... that was
1: a thing until I started, until I did it.
0: Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological, and emotional states. Hey, it's Andrew, and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. At five years of age, when Matt Formston lost his vision, doctors and teachers told him he would never play sport and his career aspirations were basically over. Matt didn't listen. He played multiple sports as a child and progressed to win gold and silver medals at the 2014 and 2015 UCI Paracycling Track World Championships. He represented Australia at the 2016 Rio Paralympics and he's a cycling world record holder. Matt also holds four world surfing titles and he recently conquered one of the world's most dangerous waves in the Atlantic waters on the coast of Portugal called Nazare. You're crazy, I've been watching your video. We are gonna talk about that. I get anxiety, Matt, watching you get towed in to that five story wave. Matt is head of sustainability and corporate social responsibility For optus business he's a sought-after keynote speaker business coach and he offers strategic training workshops to promote high-performing teams and resilient leadership Matt and his wife Rebecca have three active children and they live in Lennox head I'm happy to say he's also a passionate rugby league supporter for the mighty Manly Seagulls absolutely Matt Formston welcome to the podcast
1: I love the end. That's the best end of the intro, intro I've ever had, I think. Well, I should have just said, Matt, Matt
0: Formson's <laughs> in the house as Sea Eagles supporter. Now, we bumped into each other about five or six weeks ago yeah. at a Sea Eagles game, and uh, <laughs> you were walking along looking a little bit glum, and yeah. they, they ended up coming back.
1: I think it was the first game of the season, maybe, yeah. and we, we had a good win, so that was a good game.
0: But let's talk about you. Rough yeah. structure yes. today. Losing your sight at five years of age and growing up on the northern beaches, I want to yeah. dial into that, yeah. about cycling. You and your partnerships in cycling, world records, the speed you go, 90 kilometers an hour on a track, crazy, surfing, as I mentioned in the intro to Nazare. I want to talk about your corporate life, and I had the... Honour of interviewing you, the first time I met you, we drove from here, actually, my office, to the Central Coast, and I got to know you, and then I uh, did an interview with you at a panel at a Tour de Cure event, and you spoke to me about senses and developing a sixth sense, and I've been fascinated ever since then, and then we're going to do Performance Uncovered. So, we'll uh, rough order, and, and like when we chat, we'll, we'll dance around a little bit, but let's go back to at five years of age, reading about you listening to podcasts about you, watching videos on you. I can't comprehend, Matt, how I would have adapted as a five-year-old. Can you take me back there when you were first diagnosed or when you first found out you were losing your sight?
1: Yeah. So I I can't take any of the credit for that. I mean, obviously, I lived through it, but I have to give all the credit to my parents and the way they approached my diagnosis. They didn't say uh, your life's over, everything's a big change and, and pull the big black cloud down. Um, they were given all these really bleak prognosis that you read out in my intro, but they didn't share that with me. They didn't tell me that I wasn't going to play sport. They didn't tell me that I wasn't going to have a career or have friends, even though the doctors and the experts were telling them that. They sheltered me from all of that and they just told me that it's all good, go and climb a tree. It's all good. Go and play tackle footy. It's all good. Go and swim, even though you can't see the shore. You just swim out that way, and then you can hear the shore and come back again. So they, th- they the way they approached it was very different. You know, I never really knew that I was that different, even though I was obviously very different to my to my friends. The way Dad approached it was, you know, you, you know different, and uh, it's probably. The high-performance mindset in my life started with the way that he approached the word "can't." So there's no, there was no way I was ever allowed to use that word in anything we did in, my, in, my, in our house, and especially, and definitely wasn't able to use my vision as a reason why why I wasn't able to do something. So he taught me very early on that if you not if you're not going to do something, that's a choice and you need to explain you know, so I learnt to articulate at a very early age why I didn't want to do something and so, so that's a want is the word that I, I'd like mm-hmm. you know you've really got to be clear about that want word um, and he was really clear with me if you, you're not going to do this you don't want to do it that's fine so let's do something else so and if that was like that came in with ice hockey and rugby league rugby union um, when I wanted to play those sports he's like well let's just find a way there was a lot of naysayers were saying, "Oh, Matt, your son's, you know, they, they actually, it was really challenging for them because he would give me an opportunity to play rugby league. He was, how I started playing rugby league was he was having a beer with a few mates and they said, well, does Matt have any mates that would like to, to play in the, in the, in the under sixes footy team because there are a few, few players short. And dad said, well, Matt will play. He catches the ball, His brother, you know, with his brother in the backyard and they tackle each other. And my brother was a bit older than me. He was playing first grade at the time. So he's 13 years older than me. So they, the way they, those two men looked at my dad was like, well, hang on, no, Don, your son's blind. He's just being diagnosed with this vision loss. And the, the way they portrayed him was instead of saying, that's you're being a great dad, you're giving your son with a disability an opportunity. They were saying, you're a bad parent because you're putting your son with a disability in harm's way. Mm. But they took all that on their shoulders. They didn't tell me about any of this. And they just said, let's just go and get it
0: done. Where did your dad learn that? Where, where did he learn those skills to, to know how to shepherd you but also how to throw you out there and to give you the opportunity to play rugby league and ice hockey. Are you crazy? Like Ice hockey is one of the most ridiculous combative sports. And, and, and for our listeners, just to, to the condition, uh, it's macular dystrophy. Correct. You have 3% vision.
1: I've got no central vision at all. My left eye, I've got 1% peripheral vision and my right eye is 3% peripheral vision. So it's less than 3%, yeah.
0: I've heard you explain this. It's like there's a big oblong dark shape that you see and there's a little bit of light around the outside of it. I've actually changed the way after going through,
1: we're making a film at the moment and after we've gone through that process, it's actually just nothing. It's invisibleness in the middle. So we started by explaining it's dark. It's a black dot because Mm. that's how people in imagery portray Something that's not there, but it's actually just invisibleness. There's just nothing there at all.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, so back to that question with your dad. Yeah. Yeah. How did he learn that? I
1: don't know. And it's a
0: really good question.
1: And no one's ever asked me that before. It's one of those things, you know. Things are generational. If because I I know that skill, I'm teaching my kids that skill, and Mm. it's you know it's helping my kids already in the way they approach things. But I I have no idea where he learned that. Potentially came from his father, but he was a he was successful sales and marketing executive. And potentially, you know, you learn. I think in, when you're going through, when you get told no, building resilience as a business person or as an athlete, you learn about how to approach things and how to, you know, just pick yourself up, dust yourself off and, and try again. And that potentially picks it up from there as well.
0: Hey, it's me. Just a quick note I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts, and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform? And subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now let's get on to this week's guest. There's so much research now around growth mindset and how you can train the brain. And, you know, that, that's what I do with our favourite footy team and a whole bunch of other athletes. But that's really the last decade. So going back then, that was, was pioneering for your dad.
1: Oh, absolutely. And look, when I, I, I talk about him, I do keynotes to, you know, a thousand people. And it's talking about business improvement, all these different other things. I'll guarantee you at the end of a talk, most of the people that will come and talk to me are women that want to talk to me about
0: how amazing my dad is. And I was like, hang on, did you not hear me talking for now? <laughs> I'm pretty amazing too. <laughs> come on, I'm the guy up here <laughs> doing all the work. <laughs> and I've heard you do keynotes. They're, they're amazing. So for anyone listening to this who's got a keynote coming up or a conference coming up, we have a lot of execs and business leaders. Book this guy. Book him over me. <laughs> That's how much I'm going to promote you, mate. So, growing up, you played rugby league at yes. six. So, after that conversation in the pub, sounds like your dad went, stuff you guys. Uh, he's going to play. Yeah. You did. And yeah. you, you played rep footy.
1: I did. My first ever rep jersey. So, I've, I've represented Australia in multiple sports and, you know, more green and gold. Very proud of that. But my first ever rep jersey was a Manly Seagulls jersey. So, a very special place in my heart. And it was actually the first time that I experienced significant discrimination. Um, so, I didn't, once again, didn't know about this, but I, I got scouted. I, got, I went through selection camp and then went to the you know it was under under eights or under nines rep team you know there's a one round robin for the year where you you play against the the sharks and back in those days the magpies and and whoever else but i only played the first game and then the um the head coach for all the the junior rep team came up and said i found out that i had a disability and refused to let me play because in case i got injured the head coach yeah so i never knew so you know i was this kid that i thought i was doing really well and then didn't and didn't know why I didn't get another go for the rest of the day. I didn't play in any, any of the other games. But dad never told me why that happened until I was an adult. And um, yeah, it's
0: really sad. Yeah. So when you're playing rugby league yeah. with your mates, they obviously didn't look at you any different. It was inclusive.
1: Absolutely. If you missed a tackle,
0: you missed the a tackle. There's no excuses because you can't see. Talk me through, like what position were you and and how did you train?
1: So in rugby union, this is probably my, giving away my best joke when i was doing a keynote. But it's well, I played blindside breakaway. <laughs> Absolutely, no, I did. And so in that sport, you well, know, I had
0: Phil Moore in this studio recently. I'll, <laughs> I'll have to send this to Worry Yeah, so
1: in that position, you're just looking at in defensively. You're looking at the halfback and, and a winger, or potentially a centre. So I could see enough to see those people, and I could watch the ball coming out of the scrum. And I just, you know, I put a late tackle on. I got very good in defence. And then in in league, I played hooker. I was dummy half, so I didn't have to, have to catch the ball. I'd always pick the ball up off the ground and pass it. So I just learned what, to do to, to my what my strengths were. And I was very, very good at like it, it because of the, you know life was difficult. I went through mainstream school and I did get discriminated. I did get kids saying how many fingers, and there was a lot of you know it was it wasn't easy growing up with a disability. So contact sport was where I got to give that back to the world, and I loved the physicalness of, of contact sports. So ice hockey, all that you know, I got to t- I got to hit someone as hard as I could. And it wasn't a bad thing, you know. I and mean? as long as it was, it wasn't a high tackle, and it was done in the right way. I could, I could really get physical, and that was, that was something that, that helped me a lot. Growing, you know, I was part of the team, and also in school, I was just, I was the kid sitting at the front with the weird desk that was on a slant, and I couldn't read anything. I never learnt braille, so I just would ask questions all the time. So I was very different to everybody else. But in the footy team, I wasn't different. I had the same jersey on as everyone else, and the boys, if I missed a tackle, I missed a tackle, and the boys weren't going to say, "Oh, you missed it because you didn't see him." Like, if everyone's running over that way, they're running over there because the ball's going in that direction. There's, they're not running over there because the ice cream truck's over there. So I just follow the people and I just worked out different ways of doing things.
0: Researching you, I read an article where you talk about tennis. You oh, say, yeah. I'd, you know where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah. I'd say tennis is a bad thing. Every time I play tennis, the ball hits me in my balls. It's a little ball and it's a little area. Yeah. But somehow that ball just finds my balls. It does. <laughs>
1: It's, I don't know. How, I don't know what the statistics on that are. If there's a st- statistician out there, I'm sa- I'd say it's quite low, but it, it's it's a thing. It happens. So you just don't play tennis. Yeah. Well, I can well, I can hear the ball where it's coming from and where it's going to. So I line myself up with that, and then I, and then at the last minute I might get a glimpse of it. Hmm. But yeah, it, it generally doesn't work that way. I normally end up just I'm centred with the ball and it and it finds my centre. Something I, I actually learned at doing some corporate stuff at the Australian Open. I learned how to. I couldn't see the game, so I just started listening to you know the, the speed. I said, "How fast that? How fast that? How fast that?" Just a little fun fact. I learned how I could. I can tell you by the hearing the, the serve from when it leaves the racket and hits the ground, within two kilometers an hour, how fast the serve is. Really? Yeah. By listening. Yeah.
0: Wow. Good party trick. Yeah, did you get that straight away, or did you have to attune that a little bit?
1: Well, I didn't. I didn't try and do it. I was just asking questions with, someone, sitting with a guy at the game, and saying, "How fast was that? How fast was that?" And then I started guessing them, just as something to do, because I can't see the game, and I'm there, you know, I'm there having just with, as, with customers. And then after like about half an hour, I just to tuned it in. Well, it didn't take a long time. And then over a, a few, you know, a few days, I was getting, I was getting very accurate with it.
0: Wow. Well, let's change our order. We said it's a rough order. Yes. Because we're talking about senses and attunement. You said to me when we had that can for cancer discussion... That you can sit in a room and you can pick up when someone is not being present or they're fidgeting around. Mm-hmm. And, and you said when you lose a sense, especially in your case when you've lost sight, mm-hmm. you dial up the other senses. So that yeah. attunement you've got to pick up, that, that's ridiculous within two kilometers of an hour. Mm. Talk to me about senses and what you've learned. So, on, there's, I mean, there's
1: lots of different things, but on that day, I was specifically talking about managing a you know a boardroom or a, a meeting room, and I, I've my, my, made my career in sales, so my background in sales, and I learned that I became a very good listener. So, my whole education at school was listening, right? I couldn't read, so I had to just listen to the teacher and ask questions, and I couldn't go home and do the homework like other kids i couldn't catch up at home um or if i did it was it was all all the brunt was on my mum to read everything to me so i just asked questions and i memorized everything in class so that was a you know that's, that's a 13 year degree in sales training for me at school so then i learned you know i took that to the next level once i started doing sales and but I started by listening, but then I started. It started becoming something else. It was another sense where I could feel an energy of, or a space, or a gap. And if someone's not present, or if someone's engaged, and I, I use that energy to manage a room throughout my sales career. And now I do that, you know, as a, I'm on a few different boards, and still, obviously, know, yeah, everyone's in sales at some level. And when I'm managing, you know, a meeting, I, I'm using that energy to know. What, how, to, how to help the people in the room and when I'm managing teams myself as well like is there someone that doesn't feel like they're included and, or if they're not confident or whatever and help build that person up and, and bring them into the conversation to help them sh- share their voice
0: you use the words then it feels like they're not included so you can you try and explain that to me is it a and I've heard it's, you say that you can be in a room and someone is not listening and you'll say hey Penny what's wrong and yeah. then Penny will jolt yeah because she thinks you said you don't have sight, so yeah. she's there texting. But you feel yes. Penny not paying attention.
1: I don't know if it's colours, like the way I would describe it. It's like it's like colours that are coming from a different area, or magnetism as well. It's like you know, if you if you can imagine magnets are pulling or pushing, depending on how the magnet is is orientated. I think the way it works is energy. It might be resonance or something else that I'm picking up on. But it's if I could, it's almost a visual sense in my mind, like a, a visual, um, if you, have, if you think about visual, um, if you have memory, like if you're, if you've got a visual memory, it's almost like that visual memory, but you're not, it's not a memory. It's like, it's happening right now. You're present with that visual memory of something happening.
0: Can you teach that to other people?
1: I, th- I think it's being just being present. And yes, I think we can teach it to other people. I think it would be very difficult to learn without losing sight because we, I think sighted people rely a lot on what they see and that rightly so because that's their experience we learn we learn from our experiences and we you know you learn to trust things and you learn to to not trust things if they if they're not trustworthy so if you've got a lifetime of trusting what you see to move away from that sense would be very difficult but i think it's absolutely trainable but i think it starts with just being present because i think a lot of times people don't need to be present all the time because they can rely on sight or, or hearing or one or the other and come back to it. For me, I have to be 100% present and use all the information that's available to me. And by, having, by always looking for more information, and that's whether that's surfing or cycling or whatever I'm doing, there's always a feed of information you can get and you can find new feeds of information. And if that's in a, if that's in a room, if it's a one-on-one conversation with, with one of your team, there's always little
0: things you can pick up on if you're really present. I'm reading a book at the moment. It's about sensors The Five Senses, Uh, Gretchen Rubin. I don't know if you know about Gretchen. She's written a number of New York Times bestselling books. She's got a podcast, a thought leader in the whole space around psychology and and especially uh, social psychology. And and she talks about how she had this really great career on the external view, but she wasn't really in tune with it. And then she went for a walk in a park and took her shoes off and as the story goes, getting in touch with her senses. Mm -hmm. As I was reading that book, and thinking about our interview, I can't help but think so many people, Matt, don't appreciate their senses, don't use their senses, take it for granted. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I completely agree. And, and I think to their detriment and to the detriment of, of, the planet, of this planet, if we all are more present and we're all... Using all of the sensors and all the information that's available to us, we can be better in our relationships. We can be a lot more high-performing in our business roles and in, 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 in anything we're doing in our lives. And obviously, if we all do that together as an ecosystem, exponentially we'll grow so much quicker as a, in whatever we're doing, as a globe, as a planet, as a, as a species. So, and it makes me a bit sad sometimes when I see people that aren't utilizing everything that they, all the capacities they have. Um, and we all say we're busy, we're busy, we're very busy, and you know we're all beyond capacity. But if you're busy, but you're not doing the right activities and you're not using all the information that's available to you, then you're not growing as quickly as you could with the same amount of effort.
0: I can imagine how much punch you pack as an executive coach <laughs> if you've got someone who rocks up. They say Jonesy. Jonesy rocks up and he's got this highfalutin job. He's paid seven figures. You know, He's got the big car, the big clothes and all the bullshit stuff. And you're there and you would just pack a punch about presence and he's you know, on his mobile phone. I can imagine you just cut people down when you start talking about that that word presence. but you 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 are present. I, I feel presence with you and, and I see how you focus. like you can go from like when we first caught up, we're having a bit of a joke and then we start recording, bang, you're on. yeah, it, I, there's a real switch. yeah. when you coach people, how do you approach that? Like, if someone is fidgeting around, because you know, you get the big dogs sometimes who think they're a bit cool for school. Absolutely. How do you teach them presence?
1: I'm a, I'm a big fan of helping people coach themselves. So, it's, you know, it's all for me, it's always about asking them why they're doing something. And is that the best way that they could do it? Does there, can they think of another way that they could do that? Or has there been an experience where they've been doing that particular behavior and there's been a reaction from somebody or, you know, hasn't, you know, to, to help them unlock it? Because I think a lot of the times in my early start start of my coaching career, it's like, hey, why don't you try this? But if you just tell someone something, it's really hard for them to just take it on board just because you said so. Mm. But if they find it for themselves, they're like, I've got this. I'm, I understand why. I understand the process of how I get from here to here because I did it myself in my brain. But sometimes people just don't get it, you know what I mean? So sometimes you just have to give them a little, a little kick and say, well, what about this? How about what you're doing this right now? What do you think about that? And I, I think no one, no one that knows me or has worked with me, I, I give very transparent feedback to whoever I work with and that's challenging for some people. But I've learned how to do that softly as well now with, certain, with different people as well. So for me, it's just about helping people. Like the more I can help every person that I work with, the more that all the teams that I work with can be more high-performing.
0: I know a, a group that you love helping is young kids. Uh, your wife, Rebecca, says Matt is a natural father. He's crazy. He's basically like having another kid. <laughs> but I know you love spending time with your kids. I know you love giving back to other kids. Mm-hmm. When you look at a young child who is diagnosed with a condition like you were and you have a, a conversation with that kid, what what do you say?
1: I try and say to them, because they, they've obviously got challenges and their world's a bit different to their friends. But I try and ask them why they do as different to their friends, because it's not really. Everyone's got challenges. And I try and like s- s- explain to them, like, you, you have got a problem, you have got something that, you, that is a challenge, and it's going to be something different in your life. But it's not really that different. Like people have g- grown up in communities where they have to walk to school. or There's just so many. Everyone's got their own issues, right? And as you develop as a as a business person, something that was really really challenging for you managing your diary or you know time management, all those things that were really challenging at the beginning of your career, they don't become that they're not that difficult, right? Because you've built capacity. So it's it's breaking it down for kids, but it's about if you just go out and hurt yourself or just make a mistake, you'll get back up, dust yourself off, and you won't do that again. So you'll build yourself as a human, and that's what because they obviously ask, how did you how do you do what you do? And it's like well, I just make lots of mistakes, but I only make one. I only make every mistake
0: once. I
1: learn from that mistake and then I and then I move on and make another mistake.
0: You're also an amazing example on focusing on what you have yeah. and, and not focusing on what you don't. Yeah. I can't help but imagine, mate, a lot of kids at five, when they lost their sight, could have felt sorry for themselves. Uh, your dad, I, I love that example. I didn't know that he'd had that much influence on your life. So yeah. that, that, that was fortuitous really, right, that your dad shepherded you from that. 100%. But and and mum too, yeah, yeah. But you've never looked at what's wrong. I've never heard you complain. Mm. Have you ever had moments where you've just gone, oh, fuck, why me? Like, this is hard. I, I feel like I've been dealt a hard hand here. Not with my
1: eyesight. I did have some moments of, like, depression and challenges in my early adulthood with relationships and, you know, broken relationships. And that was that was the, probably the darkest times in my life that were really challenging. But I don't ever remember saying, oh, like, woe is me. I've got a disability. Because playing rep footy, right, I played... Seagulls, I played for Ring of Rats up until, you know, my late teens in representative football. How is a kid that's got 3% vision able to get selected above all these other kids? You know, the Northern Beaches of Sydney is a breeding ground for football for both Rugby League and Union, right? How, is, how did I get selected over, over those other kids? And it's just because I tried harder and I was a bit more focused than they were. Um, and I knew what my role was. I've always been really specific. I'm working in a team, a sporting team, a business team. What do I, like, what do, I do well? And what does the rest of the team do well? And don't try and step on their toes. Just what, do what you do well and that'll enhance the team. And that's something I learned at a really early age that I think unlocked a lot of stuff for me. Going back to that, the why is me thing around my disability, mm-hmm. I always did okay. Like I, whatever it was, I got it done. So I don't feel like um, the only thing that, I, you know, the first time in my life where it was like a clear, you can't do this is I could. Well, my mates got their licenses. And that was a bit of a challenge, because obviously everyone else is getting their driving license, and it's just not a thing for me. I'm just am not able to do that. So that was a bit of a challenge, but not really.
0: Mm. So you mentioned you had, a, a, was it a dark period or a few dark years? Yeah, Can yeah. you, you take us back there? What, what, what happened? So
1: I, I got glandular fever when I was uh, about 16, really badly. So I was in bed for about six weeks. And by the time I um, I recovered, I had a, an enlarged spleen. And the doctors basically said if I played, I was playing rugby union and ice hockey at the time, and they said if I played either sport, I could potentially die if I got a, I got a big hit, a big tackle or a stick to the ribs in, in ice hockey because my spleen might rupture. So I didn't play for that whole season. And then by the time I came back, all the skills that I'd learned of, of using my hearing and using, I mean, I, I think it's still, already at that point I was using another sense to know what to navigate the field and to navigate what the other team was doing, and listening to their ball players, you know, I, I, I could read where the ball. I was always really, I suppose, ahead of my other teammates as far as reading the play and reading the field in all the games I played. So not playing for a season, I went back and I didn't have all those skills that were above, you know, I I made up, I made up for the fact that I couldn't see by being fitter. I I did triathlons before school. I was always the fittest and strongest kid on the team. And then I had the I understood the the game better than they did. And I had that, you know, that IQ around the game, but then I lost all that. And I wasn't the fittest kid and I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have the best game IQ because I'd lost a season. So then I, I, I didn't feel, I wasn't one of the best players on the team. I actually felt like I was letting the team down. So I stopped playing all sports at that time and I found partying and I got really good at that, which wasn't, you know, that was to my detriment. So for about 10 years, I got really, I, I was, you know, I, to the point where I was taking drugs, drinking a lot, started getting into fights. So the physical stuff that I was doing, that, you know, using to out, my outlay, was tackling and, And checking people in ice hockey i didn't have that anymore so i was finding i was doing that in pubs you know getting back at all those bullies that ever said anything to me to anyone that anyone that wanted to say anything to me so that was that was really bad and to this day that's actually what i personally for me my biggest achievement is getting out of that because i was i was so reactive and so aggressive and so angry at the world and i found my way out of that and, and was able to resolve conflict without escalation, and really have perspective around what's happening right now. Do I feel sorry for this person because they're having a go at me? And that was when my – so that was my late 20s. And from that point on, my career accelerated. I then, within two years of of that decision, I found my wife. Like, within a year of finding my wife, I started writing for Australia. And the rest of it's the stuff that – the good stuff we talk about. But there was a 10-year hiatus of very dark stuff where I'm lucky I didn't end up in jail or dead.
0: I appreciate you being so open and authentic because – when we research you and and knowing you in the the speaking world as well, yeah, everyone talks about your cycling world record and the gold medals you've won, yeah, and we're going to talk about that. Now everyone talks about the four world surfing championships and and Nazareth. We don't often talk about the, the B side. I talk about that uh, in my book, uh, match fit. The A side for me, I'd, I'd always been a high achiever, good at sport, won multiple state championships, built and sold a few businesses, good at relationships. Then I went through a marriage breakdown and I didn't have the skills to pull myself back together and I really struggled. So the B side, a lot of people don't talk about, but you you just opened up and spoke about that then. What, what did that period of 10 years teach you? Obviously, compassion for others. Came out. What else did that teach you? The dark period.
1: Yeah, empathy for sure, and it taught me how to work really hard. It was really hard to come out of that. You know, coming from a place where I was, it like, there was a lot of fun times in that as well. You know what I mean? To, to say I can't do this anymore. I can't go out partying until five o'clock in the morning because it wasn't. My, I wasn't functioning the way I wanted to function, and and I also was like, I was this amazing athlete as a teenager. Like, I was playing representative football and ice hockey. As a person with a disability, I never, I never would I was never would have considered playing parasports if someone said to me you should go to the Paralympics, which they did. I thought that was an insult because I, I didn't consider myself having a disability when I was young. So through that period, I, I learned a lot about myself and I owned the fact that I have a disability. It's part of who I am and it's, that's my stripes. And it actually enhances who I am as a human. I, I, because of it, I've learned these other skills that other people don't have. So I, I learned to own everything about me, the good things and the bad things. And once I did that, I was just more authentic self. And I've been thinking about this, actually, the last couple of days. I've just seen some people that I work with changed their leadership style. And it was really because they found true self-confidence. And the way they were leading before was coming from a place of insecurity, and those behaviors show through as a leader. But obviously, when you find that true self-confidence, as a leader, you're able to make really grounded decisions that aren't necessarily about you. They're about the business or about the team. So for me, I've, I found that. I was had true self-confidence. And once I had that, it wasn't about anything else. It's just about what can I do better?
0: I could feel a shift in your emotion when you talk about that. Mm.
1: Oh, it's heavy. It's heavy stuff. It is. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah.
0: And those words are ringing in my ears. You're lucky you didn't end up in jail or dead that's a big statement
1: it was, it's it's only by luck it's not a statement that's far from the truth it's it was it's a thing
0: I feel like I understand you more now and and what drives you are you uh, obsessive compulsive you don't do anything in halves so if you're going to cycle you're going to be world champion surf world champion if you're going to party you're going to be up there with the best of them as well yeah well I, you know so that changed for me so originally it was because i'm going to prove to the world i don't have a disability
1: that's what drove me so when i've worked trained really hard at footy it's like i'm going to teach all these people that i haven't that i'm not blind and i'm going to show them all that i can do this and i and, and i think you said earlier like despite what you i'm going to do it to spite you like you you say i can't do it so i am going to do it
0: so it was a bit like fuck you
1: yeah but then i realized you know what, by doing that, I'm burning all this energy on stuff I don't really want to do because I'm just doing it because they didn't, they said I couldn't do it, but who cares if they said that? Now it's about like, what do I want to do? What, what makes me happy and what gives me joy and what, what's a challenge for me? Like I'm very, that's, curiosity is really what drives me now. So what am I curious about? How how far can I push this? And that change in narrative for me was, was everything because I wouldn't say I'm obsessive compulsive. I just, if I'm going to put energy into something, I want to do it properly and i want to get the best outcomes so when i when i do, when i'm doing the cycling you know it was all in get it done don't make errors learn 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 and I, you know we i built the first carbon tandem bikes in racing now everyone said it can't be done you can't build a tandem carbon bike and i'm like well all the single bikes are carbon why can't we do it and you know we failed a few times and we got it right and guess what everyone's riding carbon tandem bikes now and it wasn't just the riding. everyone a lot of other athletes just go you know, do the training i was doing everything you know what i mean I, I just i built this whole ecosystem around me and mick And that that helped, and and Mick obviously was part of that as well, but a lot of that was me driving that, you know, every piece of performance, anything we can squeeze out of this to get better performance, let's do it.
0: Hi, it's Andrew. Just a quick break from the program to let you know about our Performance Intelligence Mastermind. You see, every week, I get a number of requests from people wanting to do coaching. And the coaching I do, it is high-end, it's high-touch, and it's pretty high on investment. It starts at $15,000, a coaching consignment, and I know that price is prohibitive or it's just not the right price point for many people. So on Monday, the 9th of October, we're launching Performance Intelligence Mastermind. We've been running this program for a number of corporate clients, and we're going to start making this available for people like you every quarter has a theme so quarter one is all about being match fit it's physical and psychological well-being quarter two is all about productivity and working smarter quarter three is about mental skills and performing under pressure and quarter four is about embedding change habit stacking, it's around leadership and the legacy you want to leave. It's a comprehensive program. I have been coaching, facilitating, teaching, presenting, doing all these different domains for over 25 years. I'm really, really proud of this program. It is only available for a small number of people, about 15 to 20. If you go to andrewmay.com slash performanceintelligencemastermind, you'll find more information. We also want to make sure it's the right program for you. So we're asking you a couple of questions as well. Assuming it all matches, bang, we're going to start this, the week commencing Monday 9th of October. Love you to join us. In 2009, you did a charity ride for Macular Disease Foundation mm-hmm. from Sydney to Melbourne. So that's where the cycling bug kicked in. I didn't own a bike in 2009.
1: Whose who's bike did you ride? So I was on a, I was on the bus on the way into work at Optus and this guy said, I'm going to ride to – and this is around the time when I start, I just talked about getting that – mental health was good. Started going, This is, I want to be the best person I can be. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And this guy said, I'm going to ride – I've been, always wanted to ride to Melbourne – it's just the thing I want to do my whole life, and I said I'll come with you. Did you tell him you know you can catch a plane? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just thought it was it sounded like a great challenge, and I didn't even own a bike at the time. Like I didn't even have a BMX to ride down the beach, and then so we went into we went and got we went and bought bikes, and I, I didn't even know how far you could ride. So by ten am that morning, so this is a, this is on like let's say it's a Wednesday morning, we're on the bus. He's backpedaling by this point because it's at work, people see me as it like obviously you can find lots of media on me and stuff now and people see me walking around. At work, I've got this massive screen and my letters are that big and my face is this close to it or I'm walking around and you know it's running into things and so he's like, I don't want to ride with this blind guy to, to, <laughs> to, to, to Melbourne. So he's like, oh, I'm not really going to go. I'm not sure. But by 10 a.m. I had an email in his inbox with a spreadsheet of how far, where are we are going to stop along the way and a business plan of how we're going to do fundraising and yeah, how we're going to help to build the whole thing out. So it was too late. So that's, that's how the whole cycling thing started.
0: Are there any uh, manager who ever works with you in the future? Just mention the word "can't." <laughs> I bet you can't go and do a five million dollar revenue pipeline distribution this week and stuff. You, i not go do it. Well, no, I won't these days because you know if that's really what we do, let's focus on that. But otherwise,
1: I don't need to. I don't need to prove anything to anyone these days.
0: You mentioned Mick, Mick Curran. He's a good man. Shout out to Mick who had a big bike accident earlier this year. Horrendous. Is he okay? He's, he's him, okay. Is
1: he? We had coffee on Tuesday morning. Haven't seen each other for you know for about a year because I'm living up north now and he's still on the coast. He's good. He's really good. Mick's absolute professional. For him to have, have the stack he had, he's I think he's one of the best bike handlers in the world.
0: He, he's beautiful to watch on a bike.
1: He just is silk. We had a tyre blowout at 75 k's an hour once on the tandem and around a hairpin corner and he rode the bike with no, because you can't brake once you blow the tire, it was just carbon on the road, so we're sliding down the hill and there's people behind us. And he slid it, we went across the road and he pulled it up just using the front brakes and we and landed against the guardrail so we could just step off the bike.
0: Wow. Hey, he broke his neck?
1: He Yeah, so he came up, someone fell off in front of him and he had nowhere to go and he went straight over the top of them, landed on his head, he got helicoptered out, it was very serious, broke three bones in his neck, I think, and dislocated the same bones, so the surgeons couldn't work out how he didn't cut his spinal cord.
0: Yeah, wow. well, yeah. we'll send this episode to Mick as a, a way of saying, hey, mate, get better. I see on his Instagram, he's starting to do exercise and starting to move a bit now as well.
1: He's walking. He still has a technically has a, you know, we're five months in, I think, and he still technically has a broken neck, but yeah, he's starting to walk, and I think he's actually running as well, but he still can't ride. So yeah, he, he'll, he'll be good, mate.
0: So the context, you and Mick won gold in both track and road cycling. In most continents around the globe, you won 12 Australian national titles. Mm-hmm. Between like it's ridiculous the, the legacy you guys have got in cycling. Yeah. And in two thousand and fourteen, you both set a new world record in the tandem pursuit. Now we know it was carbon. That was all your fault. Your well, that was that was a
1: steel bike actually. That was before. Was it? We, yeah, that was before. That was the pre the carbon.
0: But yeah. Yeah. Ah, so the time was four eleven point yeah. two one three.
1: Yeah. That's flying. That's starting at zero kilometers an hour, and coming out of the gates, and you know building up to. I think we averaged about 65 k's an hour
0: for the last three and a half kilometers. So it's four kilometers. Correct. In four minutes and 11 seconds. Correct. The Daily Telegraph called you and Mick the dream team. Curran is the eyes and Formston is the legs behind this tandem cycling duo. I love that. I've never, I haven't heard that before. Oh, there's I love more. Mick's, there's more. Mick's, Mick's <laughs> love,
1: love the fact that I'm the legs. You're not the legs, Mick. I'm the legs.
0: <laughs> Formston said his role was to relax and trust as he pedaled from the rear seat. A lot of our communication is non-verbal we can be going 90 kilometers an hour downhill yeah so we can't talk yeah mick curran said i'm matt's eyes i used to stress out a little bit about having someone's life in my hands but we're both on the same bike you've got to concentrate a lot more on the tandem but i find the teamwork to be a lot of fun yeah
1: mate it was it was an amazing journey our, our, our career together it was we were just well beating we just bashed up everyone in both road and cycle and, and track and he was an ultimate professional. You know, we both consistency is I think for me, at the heart of high performance, it's consistency. If you need to do it every day, you need to live it, you need to breathe it. If you really want to be the best in the world at something, consistency is what gets you there. And Mick was at my house six days a week at four twenty AM. And six days a week pretty much every every week of the year,
0: we would train every day together at four twenty. Four twenty AM. Correct. So it's still, it's dark. Everyone's in bed. You guys are out on the road six days a
1: week. 100%. And then I'd go to work, do some corporate stuff. And then I'd go to the gym, train. I'll give you a stat that some people love. So when I was, I'm currently 90 kilos as a surfer. When we won that uh, first World Cup in, it's about right now, actually, about 10 years ago today, we we nearly, we, we won the first World Cup in Midtown, Canada. I was 73 kilos.
0: Jeez, that's
1: lean. But in the gym, I was leg pressing 440 kilos. So power to weight ratio,
0: it's off the charts. That's ridiculous. Can you film in on The Gap? Yeah, you do the the ride when you filled out that Excel spreadsheet for yeah. your, your colleague who was shitting himself thinking, yeah. why did I tell this <laughs> crazy mofo that I'm doing this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then to taking the world record, and I, and I think the Italians have taken that world record off you? Or? Uh, the Dutch. The Dutch. Yeah. What happened between that ride and then getting the world record?
1: So I got noticed during that ride by cyc- some people at Cycling Australia and I, because I was riding uphills really fast on a single bike. So that ride was on a single bike. That wasn't on a tandem. I basically rode from Sydney to Melbourne. I, I rode just hit those little reflectors the whole way down. So I rode from Sydney to Melbourne by Braille.
0: Oh, 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 oh. You rode from Sydney to Melbourne yeah. and you, had ne- you didn't have a bike? Yeah. Basically like Braille, yeah. looking at the reflections on the side of the road.
1: Well, I used echolocation was actually the way I did most of it. That's what I used to get around most of the time. So I use my cane sometimes, but echolocation is using the sound in the environment bouncing off walls and bouncing whatever. That tells me what it's around. So that's another sense thing. Yeah, riding down there, I could hear the way the road's going by. Like if a truck's coming past, it makes a lot of noise and the noise bounces off all the trees and other things so I know where all all those objects are. So that's basically
0: how I rode to Melbourne by echolocation. I just – I'm blown away by this. Yeah. Uh, Because when when I – did the research, yeah. and, and Lou was doing it. Well, I just thought that was on a tandem bike. No, no,
1: no, that was a single bike. It's still the world record—the longest distance travelled by a blind person on a single bike.
0: How many other people were riding? Just one. Just you? Me, oh no, you no, no,
1: no, no. Me and another person. Okay. So he went he, originally. He went in front of me, but then we realized that I, I kept nearly running into him because I couldn't see him. So he went behind me, and then um, he could tell me what was coming up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, and I could sort I of just see the line right next to my wheel, so I just and I you know hit the reflectors, and that was basically how we got the whole way down. So you come
0: from zero, you ride from Sydney to Melbourne. No yeah. wonder you were marked as yeah someone who's a bit crazy, got a bit of talent. Yeah. And then you were put in the Institute of Sport program. What happened? Well, I caught up with a coach, and I was at ninety. I was ninety four kilos in, so I had my big partying
1: mirror gym. Girl catching body, and he was like, "Mate, you need to like, they're great arms, but they're not going to do anything for you on a bike. <laughs> so you need to get like, you need to in a physical change is a lot of work." And I was like, "I, I said to him, I don't forget it. I was having it as a dy coffee shop, and I caught up with this guy and." Is one of the head coaches for Cycling Australia, and they, you know, they earmarked me. But he said, "These are the things," and I said, "Well, I want to be a world, I want to be a world champion, and I want to be, a, I want to go to the Paralympics." And he's like, "Well, no, no, hang on. that's not how this works. You need to, you know, get on the Australian team first, and there's a long chance for you that. You'll that will never, that you'll never do that." And I was like, "No, I want to go to the next Paralympics. How do I do that?" And he basically said, "It's not, mate, it's not how it works, mate. You needed."
0: To- is that word again? Can't.
1: If yeah. anyone ever says can't to you, you're like, really? Well, that didn't bother me that he said car because I didn't. It wasn't in my narrative. I was just like, Well, this is what I'm going to do." So, just can you just tell me how I do it or how it m- might be done? If it hasn't been done before, that's fine. I'm just gonna. I'm doing it. So let's go. All my friends and all my sh- support network that knows me, when I told them, they were just like, "Okay, we'll just." get out of his way he's gonna gonna, gonna do it he's gonna do it so but yeah so that's how it happened i started riding with a guy called phil talks on a tandem we rode together for about a year he just finished his pro tour he he was riding for drapac in in europe um and he'd just come home so we rode for for a year and then he had his first child he decided he just wanted to retire and mick we used to so we used to for training we used to race crits against single bikes and the one bike we'd never beaten in sydney was mick curran so if you can't beat him, join him. So I rang Mick. And I said, hey, Mick, Phil's retiring. Do you want to jump on the front of the tandem? And he'd just come back from Europe as well. He'd been racing in Europe. And he's like, oh, I'm going to retire, but I'll come and do this one Aussie, Aussie titles with you to help you out, and then we'll find someone else. And we went to that Aussie title. We won everything there. We won the time trial and the road race. And then on the way home, we had a bit of a chat, like, do you want to do this properly? And we had both had a conversation with our wives, and we all know how those – you know, it's, it's – they're very supportive and amazing people that, you know, have been our biggest support. Um, and then that was, that was the start of the journey. And then from there on, we just won everything for a lot. I mean, we didn't win everything, but we certainly won
0: more than we lost. When I interviewed you and Mick at the Can for Cancer event a few years ago, I asked Mick – to give me a bit of insight to riding with this guy, and I, I check my notes on this, Mick said, quote, you are batshit crazy, and you are also the most determined person I've ever met. Correct, Summary?
1: I don't know that I'm batshit crazy,
0: but maybe everyone else that knows me says that. So, I think it was with a term of endearment. <laughs> and, and when you two get on stage and speak, you take the piss out of each other, but there's a, there's a real love, there's a real connection. Oh, mate, we, we, like,
1: when you do something like that in a team, the commitment, the, like, the investment and the, the sacrifice, I suppose, is what I'm looking for. We, but we were spending more time on the bike. We, like, we were riding on a tandem together every day for the three hours. Then we were, when we were away like racing in europe and in america we were living in a ho- the same hotel room we were spending more time with each other through that period than we were with our wives like it's not healthy but that's what we needed to do to be the team that we were and like we were, we were our brand at the time was oz tandem and we were we were the most formidable cycling duo in the world like it was just it was amazing but that didn't come without the sacrifice that we both made to our everything in our lives you know we both went to bed hungry every night it was pretty gnarly.
0: Mm. yeah so do you miss those years I, I did commentary
1: at the Commonwealth Games for 2018 and they someone asked me that question, do you miss – and it, that was just after I'd retired. So I was sort of going between the commentary box and hosting and then going down and talking to the athletes because I still knew all the, all the athletes. And I missed being able to make a bike go that fast and the power you can feel coming out of your body going through the bike. It's just an amazing thing that unless you ride at, at that absolute elite level, you'll never experience. But I don't miss what's required to do that. The absolute dedication, The, the you know you can't go to a – a service station and get a protein bar because it potentially has contaminants in it that will send you positive. You know, there's just you can never let your guard down about anything. You can't go to a coffee shop and get a smoothie because it potentially has contaminants in it, and you don't know how much sugar's in it. And there's just all these like your brain is just. It's not just about the writing It's every minute of every day. Your brain is going. I want to win the world title this year. So if, if I make a mistake in this minute that could potentially ruin it for me and for Mick and for the, our families that have invested all this time and sacrifice with us being away. So we need to get it right for our friends and our family and our sponsors.
0: You've obviously worked out a goal setting structure that works. So you did that right. And then you said, I'm gonna to go to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Do you look at the goal and work backwards? Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. And then just go, right, I need to do, this is the ultimate goal and mm-hmm. then I need to be here. Talk, talk, talk through that process.
1: Um, so yeah, this is the ultimate goal and I think it's dates are really important, really, really important. You need to have dates for your milestones. So the ultimate goal is the Olympics but to get selected on the, to, for, on the Australian team, the Australian cycling team, in, back in, when we were riding, to, to get selected you had to be, basically be a world champion or a podium level athlete because the Australian team was so good that everyone that was going was, was at that level. So we knew to get selected to go to the Olympics, we had to be world champions, basically. So w- when we we need to be world champions by this date to get to be eligible for selection, to know that we're going to get selected. We didn't want it to be a, you know, we don't want to be 50-50 between us and someone else. So if you're a world champion, you're going to get selected. So you let's go be a world champion around selection time, so we go to the Olympics, and then we can win that. So it's it's the stepping stones of getting there, but you, it's all milestones. And you know, to get to to get to being world champion, you, have, you obviously need to be Australian champion. You know, so it's, it's these and then winning world Cups and winning at all these levels and you know making mistakes going okay well we're not we're trying different types of training and you go well that didn't work you know I'm not fast enough or different types of tapers like if we if we train until the day before how does what does that do to our bodies or if we if we taper three days earlier what does that do to our bodies and maybe is it different for me and Mick do I have a different taper process than him do I need to taper earlier and he tapers a bit later because he's a bit younger than me
0: yeah, that's something I've thought about when you're doing tandem because if yep. it's just you as an athlete, yeah, you, know, you get your tapering, you get your mindset because that's a big thing as well, the psychology you bring into that. Yep. Now, when you do it with two, you've got to be totally in sync.
1: Yeah. And we were almost burnt out. And I think, you know, we did, Mick didn't go with me to Rio. To you know, he, he – decided not to come which is you know i think maybe he's like the only person that's ever been selected to go to the olympics or the paralympics for australia and, and said no thank you and it was it's intense like we were we were melting it was not physically the intensity the mental intensity the emotional intensity the energy like that sense uh, those other senses that it's a melting pot and it's that you it can only last for so long at that level before it implodes
0: it makes sense why you then jumped off the bike and dove back into the ocean yes. in surfing yeah A quote from you says, As a cyclist, my why was to prove to myself and to the world that with the right mindset, behaviours and work ethic, you can become a world beater. My why in surfing is because I absolutely love everything about surfing and to be able to compete in the sport that I love is an absolute bonus. Yeah. So you stopped cycling, you hung that up for a while, you surfed from a young age. I did. So w- when I was
1: riding around with Mick and we are putting in these crazy hours on the bike, we'd all- I'd always talk to him about, I can't wait till, till I retire, because I-, I couldn't surf when we were riding. Because if I got a finch off of my foot, I couldn't race. So I just did not surf at all the- for my through my cycling career, apart from a few times a year in between track season and road season, or road season and track season. So I literally would surf four or five times a year. Um, so I just couldn't wait to go back to my sport that I love, but they didn't have... Parasurfing wasn't the sport until 2016, so I was just looking forward to going surfing after I retired from cycling. Like that was what I was going to do, and then they announced, you know, literally when I was in, um, I was in Italy training, and it was funny. We used to, I used to surf. Obviously, I was very I was a very good surfer for my whole life, and grew up with a lot of people that became pro surfers, and I lived in the street with Damian Hardman, as a world champion surfer, and I grew like North Narrabeen. I grew up around surfers everywhere. Um, and that would have been my dream from a kid to be a pro surfer, but that that dream was, you know, taken away from me because of my disability. And then the boys would always say, I "Imagine if they let you blind, expletives, surf against each other, how good that would be! You'd, you'd beat everyone." And I always joke. And then when I was in Italy training to get, just before I was go about to go and race at the Rio Paralympics. One of my mates texted me, He's like, "You wouldn't." he sent me this news article, he said, you wouldn't believe it, they're going to let your blind expletives compete against each other and they just announced that World Championships for, for para surfing was going to be, the first one was going to be at the end of 2016. So I literally was like, well, cool, I don't just get, I, I love competing, you know, I love surfing. So now I can do the sport I love and I can compete. Win-win.
0: How did you focus on the Olympics knowing that? Well, it was
1: a distraction, i have to say. It was a real big distraction because I was like, I can... the the cycling was becoming
0: a chore and your buddy had burnt out and he he made a decision to stay back with his wife and family
1: correct and so i was there with you know with nick and it wasn't it definitely wasn't like riding we just didn't have the same synchronicity like you you know we we me and mick spent thousands of hours together on a bike and that through that we we were basically one human being on a bike together that we would remove in a peloton, like we were one person. It was, you know, you, you just don't get that. You can't build that in six months. Um, so and, and it was And you, you
0: had a, a, a touch when you tap each other on the leg, you had some visual cues.
1: Yep, yep. He'd ta- he would touch my hand on the handlebar, or I'd, yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd have, it was all touch. We'd click, he had, we had different cues, because if in the peloton, you're not gonna just gonna go, hey, the Dutch are looking tired, let's go, because they're gonna hear you. So we'd, we'd have cues, so that he, we knew when we are about to, to attack. And then he'd do like three little subtle, like bounce as he was pedalling, he'd do like three little subtle bounces on the saddle, and that would tell me he's about to stand up. So after the third one, we'd both launch out of the saddle and attack.
0: So you could just feel that.
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then descending, like we, he talked about, we had each other's life in our hands, That was that's literal, that's not... Uh, so I could steer the bike from the back. So if you know when you're a kid, you're riding down the street and you look, there's a bird flies off a fence or someone comes out of their door and you look over in that direction, what mm. happens?
0: Yeah, you go that direction?
1: You're right over there. So I'm on the back of the bike with him. If I lean in a certain direction, we go that direction. So if we're descending down hills and um, I ended up descending over 100 kilometers an hour when we were in Switzerland towards the end of my career. If you lean the wrong direction, if I don't follow his weight through the corner, we're both dead. How do
0: you follow that? That's that sixth sense you talk about? Well, it's trust. It's, you know That's
1: what I've learned. It's been a really big thing for me as well is learning to trust, but also not working with people I don't trust. So I've got to let my walls down. The people that I work with you know, in cycling, but now in big wave surfing, I have to, I have to trust them that, that, with my life. You know, they are, They're keeping me alive. Um, and when you do that and you let go completely, so when I first started riding, because I had ridden a single bike, I would try and steer us through a corner. And that would put mick off and we'd be fighting each other because he's like trying to do it and i'm i'm leaning us into the corner what i learned was i let him lean into the corner and then i follow him so and then as he starts coming out of the leaning up i come up after him so my weight becomes is just following his what his line and that was the same on the track on the velodrome as he leans into the corner i'd lean in with him and that would push us through the corner so it's it's a trust thing as well you know with Trusting that he's doing the right thing and he's, you know, he's he's doing something for a reason and, and not to not to fight
0: him. Mm. So you get back from Rio. Yeah. Literally hang up the bike. Yeah. Did you jump in the ocean straight away? What yes. happened?
1: Oh, yeah, straight away. And then I found out, so I rang Surfing Australia as well, to, you know, to find out about the, the comp- competing side. And I'd love to compete next year. What does that look like? And I told my wife, obviously, I was re- retiring from professional sport.
0: Can I, can I just pull on that thread yeah. a little bit? No, yeah. Um, your, your wife must be a very loving, caring, understanding, wonderful woman because yeah. she would have been thinking, okay, 2016, he's gone full on with this with his mate Mick. Yeah, Mick's hung up the gloves. Yeah, uh, my husband's going to do the same. Yeah, we're going to just have a normal life together now. Yeah, how did you frame that with her?
1: Well, so I rang Surfing Australia and said, like, what's? How do I get involved for next year? Because it's for me, it's like, how do I? What's my next? I want to build capacity towards, you know. Winning. I want to be the. I want to be the world champion. I don't want to just do this, but like compete. So how do how do I get involved? What do I do to get involved for twenty? So this is twenty sixteen. How do I get involved for twenty seventeen? And the girl on the phone said, Well, actually, we've got a competition next Saturday on the Gold Coast. To we haven't selected the team yet for this year. So this is in. I'd come back from Rio in September. This is like the end of September. Um, they're doing the tryouts at the beginning of October. So. You know to my wife's credit to her credit as a human being but maybe to her discredit as a, as a wife she i rang her and said oh this is this is what they've said and i'd love to do it but understand if you know if, you, if you're an absolute no with it i'm fine with that too and she said, oh, well, let's just go up there to the Gold Coast. We'll make a little family holiday. We'll take the kids up there. You haven't been surfing much anyway, so you probably won't win. So
0: underscore, she's hoping, <laughs> I, hope, I hope this bastard gets totally wiped out, 100%. cleaned up, yep, yep. has a mouthful of sand and then walks back up on the beach, yep. tail between his legs, and then we will go back and have a normal and, life. And doesn't want to do it. Yeah. Yep. That didn't happen.
1: I won and got selected and then went to Worlds in December and came third, which, you know, that was a not a nice taste in my mouth, and went back and worked really hard, worked out a new strategy, got a coach, never been coached as a surfer before, got some sponsors, and um, yeah, the rest, the rest is history, I suppose.
0: Well, four world champions now, four, yeah. four world championship titles, mm-hmm. so getting third's pretty good, like to go to your first title and come third, Yeah. do you hate losing though? Or is it just that you go? Oh, no, I'm better. I can do better than third.
1: Well, so I didn't win last year, um, and it was without making excuses. The way I just couldn't get away in the in the quarterfinals and the, sorry the semifinals, I just couldn't get away. If there was just the surf was that bad, it was basically a lucky dip and didn't get through. So that was a really hard pill to swallow, having invested that much, and you know, being there's a lot of momentum around my brand, I suppose as well. So you go there as the, as the guy, and everyone's like, "Matt's here," and And then to just get knocked out—it's—it's really hard. But I've got a lot better with it, and I'm really excited. There's some young guys in Australia that are getting really good. There's some good people around the world that are coming up. Like it was—it wasn't easy for me to to win, but it wasn't super tricky. Like I could win if I got two good waves, I could pretty much win every competition for a while there. But it's not like that anymore. The, The the field's getting a lot better in my category, and and I love seeing that. And you know that's my when the when my cycling world record got broken, my son was like, "Dad, that's really sad." aren't you really sad that you that they took your world record off you? And I was like, well, no, they didn't take it off me. They earned it. And that's what world records are for. It's progression. It means the world's progressing and people are trying harder and they're finding better ways to be efficient. And I, th- I think it's good. Like the, the the more that we improve as, as people, it, it, when we enhance in sport, it means other things around that ecosystem are enhancing. You know, people are getting supported better. There's better technology. I I'm, I'm not don't like, don't like losing, but uh, I'm getting better at it.
0: Is that your legacy? Have other people who are visually impaired to other people Who've been told they got a disability hmm. to say that word can't doesn't exist. So when you see other people even take your championships, your titles, yeah. there's a big part of you where you go, "That's awesome! That person's empowered. That person's living. They're alive."
1: Well, I, th- I think there's a part as well. It's just set the community up. You know, with, with Mick and I's world record, it it was around that four minutes twenty went, and then over about fifteen years, it went down from four twenty to four seventeen, and then we smashed it down to four eleven. So that. Moves it forward quite a bit, you know. I mean, it increases the amount of effort required for that whole sport to to be close to that world record mark. You know, it it shows all of a sudden everyone started going faster. So that world record sat there for how many years, and no one, everyone was amazed if they went four eighteen, and then all of a sudden we set the world record of four eleven. And guess what? At world championships, everyone's done four fifteens, but they couldn't do four fifteens two years earlier. So it, the pride that I have with you know. Making the requirement of performance higher is is a part that I'm really proud of. And in business now as well, enhancing the way people authentic leadership comes through and and well-rounded leadership and coaching people around how to do that. I think that improves businesses and it improves people's you know customers and people's experiences when they go to work.
0: Mm. So Matt, I understand now how you use different senses and faculties to ride. How do you surf? Like, because and and again, from N equals one, me, I'm just under six foot three. Yeah. I'm, I'm I, okay at most sports. Yeah. I can stand up when I surf, but I, I've seen video. My sister took footage up on the Gold Coast recently. How I think I look, yeah. and then how I looked on the video <laughs> it was poles yeah. apart. Yeah. So, the skill. For me to, to surf in the feel and with full vision, I just I can't understand. How do you do that with 3% eyesight and charge waves like you do? It's about being present. It's really about being
1: present. And for me, it's the most – surfing by feel is the most present you could possibly be because I, I, everything's feel. So I take off on the wave. I stand up. On land, I use a cane sometimes. Most of the time, I use echolocation, but I do use a cane sometimes. And my front foot becomes my cane. So I go down the wave. I can feel how steep the front of the the wave is with my front foot. As the wave starts flattening out, my my foot feels that. So then I start turning back up the wave. And then as – so it's like the way – it's the feel – it's not – and I'm not doing any of this consciously, right? This is thousands of hours of building this in subconsciously. But as I'm turning back up the wave, my front foot's feeling how steep it is. And then I can feel, you know, if I'm going to go straight up and do a hit in the lip – and then come straight back down if it's steep enough, or if I feel that as I'm ha- halfway up that it's getting flatter, I know that I'm I'm f- uh, it's a, the wave's going fat and I'm or I'm projected out in front of the wave, so I'll turn my I'll make my turn go out and do a cutback. So I'm just feeling the wave, but it's all being 100% present with what's happening under my feet right now. 100% right now. So it's being so zoned in to that one motion and riding that wave, and it's just yeah, that's the, the sense I love about it so much is that I'm not. There's nothing else in the world except me and my board and what's and I'm just letting my body do what the wave wants me to do.
0: When you explain that you're moving with it, so I can see it's very, it, it's it's fully kinesthetic. Mm-hmm. When there's a new move and you can't see the move, someone explains it to you. How do you unpack that? How do you feel the move and then how do you bring that onto the board?
1: So the other day, I because I'm 90 kilos, right? And some of the guys I compete against are like 20 kilos lighter than me. So in small waves, I'm giving away a massive advantage to them and it's, it's tricky for me. But I was out with surfing with one of the guys I surfed with, Woody, who was a junior world champion and a really good coach. What and a he, good name
0: for a surfer, Woody. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and he told me what you need to do. So that they told me about feel. When you fit, when you do this, feel this movement and talked about like putting my hands on so my hand. I'm really, power surfing is my thing, like big turns on big waves, that's what I love doing and it's what I'm really good at. But in small waves, not so much. So when I'm on big waves, I throw my hands up high to to take the weight off my feet to put weight through the board. But in small waves, I need to put my hand down to push the speed through my front foot. So he said, you're not doing this, you're putting your hand up, so push your front hand down and talk me through that feeling. He said, but compress your legs so that your hand... So it's about, my coach has talked me through the feeling What my body's going to do when I'm doing that maneuver, and how, what part of the turn it is. So, and the speed, you know, the speed and how it's my rail. So, it's all of it. Talk. They talk me through the feel, and that I suppose I work with people that are able to have that capacity. To to, they're not just good surf coaches, but they're also good. They're also good. They're able to interpret it from a visual feed where they would the way they would normally coach into a a kinesthetic feel movement.
0: Mm. So, how did you then turn that into surfing Nazaré? Because that it's one of the world's biggest waves
1: it is yeah, the other biggest wave in the world all the world records are set there off yeah. the
0: coast of Portugal it's the one that everyone sees with the lighthouse and just charging waves and I believe the wave that you caught tow in surfing was the equivalent of a five-story building
1: one of the waves yeah I surfed there for three days um and yeah the last there was the last day was quite big it was a really big swell so it was yeah about 15 meters
0: Reverse engineering again. You go, right, I'm going to surf Nazare. You surfed around the world. You said you like big waves. You would then have had to have got a team together. Mm-hmm. You'd have to get used to tow in surfing. Talk us through all that.
1: So, yeah, I always like bigger waves because even though that's the one thing for me-
0: like there's uh, big and there's, there's Nazare, mate. <laughs> like
1: <laughs> Yeah, but you build capacity, right? So, when I was a little kid, I was five years old. My mum, dad would take me out on my bodyboard and push me into waves. And I learned how to feel riding a wave on a bodyboard. And then, he, and then he let me start paddling out. So I'd started listening and, and, and duck diving by sound, hearing the wave coming towards me and then feel the feel of it because the wave sucks as it comes towards you because the water moving towards the shore is not it's not the same water that's out the back. It's just it's kinetic energy that's moving through the water and then the water just gets displaced as the energy travels through it. So as the wave... When you duck dive, and people that commentate that see me duck, they're like, he looks like he can, he's duck diving better than the cider guys, but I'm doing it by feel, whereas they're doing it by seeing, trying to time it with the seeing the whitewash. I can feel when the wave's sucking the energy, and that's when I duck dive, so I use the feel. So it's more efficient. So, I built that capacity. I started building this bodyboard when I was one foot. And I started bigger and bigger and bigger waves, and when it's bigger, it's easier for me. Like, and I walked through a car park. I walked in here today. I can smash my shins on everything and trip, knock things over, and break things and hurt people and whatever. In the in the surf, I fall. I fall off. It's like you falling off. I'm just in water, and as long as I'm fit enough and strong enough to handle that beating and so it's freedom for me I can actually be as reckless as anyone else whereas I can't do that skiing or snowboarding or spot riding on a single bike because you know if you run into a tree at speed or go off a cliff it's there's a very bad outcome so I built that capacity I wanted to surf bigger and bigger waves my, uh, my my shaper that makes my boards Dylan Longbottom who's one of the best big wave surfers in the world we were talking about what waves in Australia I could surf that were you know bigger waves with just bluff and a, f- a few other different waves and I'd been training myself for bigger and bigger waves and I'd surfed, you know, probably 20 to 30 foot face waves in Australia, but we we don't get 50 foot face waves in Australia. So I was actually, you know, sitting down with, we're making a film at the moment about my my journey and specifically about my big wave surfing.
0: Called The Blind Sea out I think early next year, is that right? I think so, yeah,
1: early February at this stage. I can't
0: wait to see that. Yeah. I really can't wait to see it. So the boys set me up, so it
1: wasn't my idea to go to Nazareth. So the director, they're filming an interview for that and they said, Oh, and um, Dylan kept calling me and I said, oh, I'll just call him back after the interview, and they're like, No, 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 just take it now, it's okay, take it now. And they had another camera at the other end. I didn't know this. And so they're filming and he he really says, Maddie, what do you think about surfing Nazareth? And I was like, and they were waiting for this whole like, oh no, no, I'm still, I don't, no, I don't want to surf that place, and it's really, yeah, let's not do that. I was like, just glowed. I was just like, oh my god, let's go, like absolutely. And so for the director, it wasn't good because he didn't get that drama he was looking for. But I was like, okay, I'm locked in. And then from there on, we built the team out and worked out. I, I mean, I'd done towing a lot of, I've done a lot of towing before, but nazare is very different so we normally tow using
0: i'll just explain to people listening who don't understand towing yeah yeah. you've got a guy or a girl on a jet ski it's like you're water skiing behind you've got a rope and then you're on a surfboard so they're towing you in speed because those big waves with a 50-foot face wave you can't paddle fast enough no so you've got to go in accelerated behind a jet ski and then you let go
1: yeah so i was letting go of the rope over in nazare at, at about 65 kilometers an hour and then i was getting faster going down the wave
0: <laughs> I, I just do not know what to say about that. And look at you. You're just laughing and shaking oh, the your best head. Time like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got a quote. When asked about this after, you said, it felt amazing. Uh, you're, you're a surfer, right? You should have been like, it felt fucking amazing. Woohoo! Yeah. I'm, I'm also a businessman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, true. It felt amazing. Good point. I've done a lot of different things in my life that have been big tasks, but this one was particularly special. My wife and kids are happy I came home in one piece. The speed was between 50 to 60 kilometers an hour. Normally, I have 1% vision in one eye and 3% in the other eye, but it becomes zero vision at that speed. So it's about feeling the wave, the board, and my front foot. Beautiful.
1: So we built the team out, and the part that was we didn't know was how do we like – because you can say go or no, because I can't see the wave. So from the lighthouse, people get to Nazaré and they go, nah, not into that. Look, They see the wave, they go there to surf it and they look at it and they go, no way, I'm not doing that. I can't do that. So the guys had to make that decision for me whether I was capable of doing that or not because I can't see it. So the only time that I know how big the wave is is when I get to the bottom of it. Then the next part is as a sighted person where you're on the rope, you can look down the wave and go, nah, and, and just hold on to the rope and stay on the back of the jet ski. I can't do that either. So the we worked out the blow the, whi- the blow the whistle. And Dylan had said to me before, we, he got a, he'd nearly died there a few years ago and he'd let go of the rope and didn't commit to a wave and the next wave landed on his head. Um, so he's like, if we if we blow the whistle, so the, we got a big orienteering whistle which was really loud. If we blow the whistle, you go and you ride the wave as far as you can because if you don't, if you if you try, if you kick out and shoot and to go, and the next wave comes and gets you. That's when things go go really bad. Yeah, so we that, we did that using that. And the, originally, the first couple of waves, they sent me wide on the wave, which means further away from the, the whitewash. And they noticed that I wasn't because I was going so fast, I couldn't feel when I was at the bottom of the wave. So they blew the whistle a second time, and that's when I started my bottom turn. And then they blow the whistle a third time. So as we got to the bigger and bigger waves and they'll push it and they'll sending me deeper and deeper, closer into the, the, the impact zone, we got really good. And that, so Lucas Chumbo, who's one of the, probably the best big wave surfer in the world, was my tow driver um, and he would ride the, the crest of the wave. He could look over the crest of the wave on the jet ski. After he'd whip me in, after I let go, he, would have the, he was my, my tow rope, he was watching over the corner then he'd blow the whistle to steer me, like remote control me across the wave. And then I had two other jet skis with my safety. People say I was really risky. Like you could kill this blind guy. It was very dangerous. But there's, for anyone that knows me, and you put at least you know from listening to this podcast, nothing I do is there's no there's no there's no nothing's been left to, to question. You know what I mean? We had we dotted every i and crossed every t, and and then capacity wise, I had trained in the pool, learning to breathe. So I didn't do a lot of surfing leading into Nazaré. It was more about my physical strength in the gym, and my, and what, so I didn't break my back because you can break your back if you hit the wave. There's so much force in the wave. So it was all about my, my physical strength and then my breath capacity.
0: Yeah, I read that about the breath work. Yeah. Did you train with anyone? I Any trained team? with a few different people. Did you, uh, Nam Baldwin, because he does a bit with surfers. Did you he do work with Nam?
1: I didn't do work with Nam. I did it with a few different – I worked with a guy that does – Lucas who does uh, – he trains a lot of the – he trains the Australian freediving team. He taught me all of my mental capacity and a lot of the, the – the f- long strength capacity and then I worked with a guy called Dwayne who has, has taught a lot of the big, specifically around big wave surfing. So there was two components to that breath work for me. It wasn't just about one person that gives me like a rounded approach. I needed to be the best. It's like back going back to my footy days. I needed to be able to be have a better breath capacity than all the be- big wave surfers in the world because they can see. So I got to a point where I could hold my breath longer than I think all the other big wave surfers. So how, how long can you hold your breath underwater? N- oh not now, but just for, when but just when I went to Nazareth I could hold my breath for about six minutes. Six minutes. But five minutes forty seven, I think was my longest, yeah. For single breath.
0: I don't know what to say on that. That's ridiculous. I, but, I didn't, but I I didn't also... know that was
1: a thing until I started, until
0: I did it. <laughs> Yeah, but but uh, look I know people can train up to like seven eight minutes or oh, ten. L- ten. Well, free divers three yeah, divers, yeah.
1: divers yeah they can get but yeah very low low heart rate whereas for me it was that was that was a low heart rate breath hold but I had to learn high heart rate stuff so it was because it's lacked because when you, you let go of a rope on a 50foot wave you don't have low heart rate so it was learning how to control my breath at high heart rate and it was, it was v- lots of varied training but I knew when I got there and Dylan and all the team that were there with me knew that I had the physical component of of my training and how hot, but what level I was at. So they were all really confident around sending me into those waves.
0: To hold your breath in a pool for six minutes, that's great. It's, it's, it's wonderful use of physiology and calming nerves and it's a real physical, psychological combination. But when you're coming down a 50-foot face wave and you tumble into the water – you can't just click in and go, right now, I'm going to relax and be calm and go at yeah, six minutes. You could take a gulp of water. You could. And that's all part of the training. Okay. Yeah. It's building all those lessons.
1: We we're in the pool in Nazare and Dylan's physically being, I'm underwater. He's physically beating me up underwater. Okay. Spinning me around upside down, punching me in the lungs to push air out of my lungs. I was doing empty, I was doing uh, empty lung. So the six minute breath hold is full lung. I was doing, with Dwayne, I was doing empty lungs, so full exhalation, and then he'd squeeze my chest cavity, and then I was doing 25-meter swims underwater, and then I'd come up and have one breath, full empty lung, and then swimming 25 meters underwater with no air. So I knew that if, we, like, you build that trust in your body that you know you can stay underwater without any air. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, you, you don't go down the wave at the first time, and that's the first time you've had water in your, your mouth or you've had your, all the air pushed out of your body or you don't want that to be the first time for anything. You know, you, you've prepared for every possible contingency. So when you, when it happens, your body can go back to that experience.
0: So on the days you surf, Nazare, yeah. what was the longest you did have to hold your breath underwater?
1: Uh, 30 seconds, yeah. not that long, you know, but that's still a l- very long time underwater and a very harsh environment. Uh, and it was to the point where the, we had, so because we, we're filming for the, the movie, we had four cameras on the land. We had a drone and then we had two cameras in the water on jet skis no one could find me and i was in a bright orange wetsuit just got dragged underwater for that long but it wasn't actually the first one that was that bad so the, I, I didn't make the biggest wave i caught i did i stayed on it for just too long and it clipped me at the end um and it was like a 30 foot end section that just d- drilled me and i came up from that and the, they couldn't get to me in time they couldn't find me and the next one that hit me it was it was two waves that had joined together and The white water was, you know, it was probably 20 to 30 foot of white water. It hit me with so much force. I went from zero to like 50 kilometers an hour. Just that acceleration of my body, and then it just bounced me around. So you know, I trained to lock my core on and keep all my arms in, so I didn't escape my shoulders. And it's just so physically violent. You're still
0: attached to your leg rope. No, I no, no,
1: of... no, no, no leg, no leg ropes. Uh, your surfboard's the most dangerous thing in that environment. Okay, gotcha, so as soon as gotcha. you, soon as you as soon as you don't make that wave, your board, you board, you get your board as far away from you as physically possible. So I had inflation vest on, so it actually has carbon dioxide cylinders in my back, so I can pull a tab and that brings me to the surface, sort of but the second one because i was flat on the top it just dragged me and it kept me in the foam and wouldn't let me come up so that that was really that one was really violent and probably more confronting but that was they're both around the you know 20 to 30 second mark which is when you're talking about 6 minutes mm. 20 to 30 seconds doesn't sound very long but trust me for anyone listening to this that has surfed if you think about your scariest longest hold down you've ever had it was probably 4 seconds
0: yeah i'm just going to when I have surfed recently and got dumped, I reckon it was five. And you come up. <gasps>
1: yeah, and it was probably two in reality.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was probably one. Yeah, mate. Yeah. I was on a boogie board
1: and yeah, yeah, I was yeah. in the wash with my young kids. Most, most hold downs for any surfer are less, less than eight seconds. And it, yeah, well, but it can be a really bad experience.
0: Take a big breath for me. Breathe out slow. And when I ask you about Nazarene, and what you've achieved, what do you feel?
1: There's two parts to it. I, I feel all the all the achievements that I've had in sport, I don't really feel like, I just feel like, well, I earned it. Like I did the work. I don't feel like, oh, that's amazing. Because I did it. I lived it. I did it. And I knew I could do it. So it's not like, it's not a revelation to me. Even though other people think it's amazing. I just think, well, that's just my life. And I chose to do it and I did it. But the main thing for me that I didn't know was going to be a big thing about Nazare was the sense of inclusion. So having a disability in my whole life, I haven't always been included in things. And, you know, even though I'm a public figure and I've done some crazy stuff in sport and I get sponsored by amazing companies and I've got, you know, I've got this brand, you don't always feel included. You, and and I, I can go into a club and not everyone's talking, but I can't, you guys all lip read, even though you don't know that you don't do it. Everyone's lip reading. I can't, I'm not able to get that information. So all of a sudden I'm not included because it's it's really hard for me to be been part of that conversation. Going out around the the head, the, so you go out of the the, the harbor at Nazare and come around the headland to where the waves are. I've got Dylan Longbottom on a ski. I'm on the back of a ski with with Lucas Chumbo. I've got you know the best big wave guys in the world. It's like a special forces mission going out on these jet skis, skipping across the water, and they're going. They're taking me out. They've donated their time to take me surfing, and that sense of inclusion and. And the trust that they've got that they they know that, you know for them to take me out in those waves and like their their brands at risk right they kill the blind guy they're, that will ruin their their professional surfing career mm-hmm. um, so it's a lot of risk for them but it's not knowing that that wasn't a risk for them because they knew that I'd trained and I'd done the work and I'd earned the right to surf Nazaré that sense of inclusion from those guys that's that's the achievement for me
0: mm. uh, I, you got that emotion again I can yeah. feel that yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. big, right?
1: Yeah, huge. And I didn't know that was going to be a thing. But it was. It was the biggest thing for me. And I'll, and I'll always remember, whenever anyone asks me about what's the biggest thing in Nazareth, it's actually going out on the skis. It's not even about surfing.
0: So that 10 years you spent partying, taking drugs, fighting, yeah. arguing, wrestling, yeah you didn't feel included? You didn't feel like you belonged? Is that what you were searching for, fighting against?
1: Absolutely. Was it? That's not who I am. That's not, you know, there was a distraction from what i want to be as a person and it was just numbing all that stuff you know what i mean because it, i didn't take i wasn't own, i wasn't owning who i am i would i'd lost that sense of ownership and once i owned and took responsibility for who i am and what i should be doing and and built that curiosity that's when it all changed and you know now, now all these opportunities of you know some people actually said to me, oh, you're so lucky you, you get to ride with the best cyclists in the world because they're your friends and you get to surf with the best surfers in the world because they're your friends. <laughs> they weren't my friends before I was a surfer. They weren't my friends before I was a cyclist. You know, I, I did the work. I spent the hours. I built the capacity and then they became my friends and, and I'd earned the right for them to take me out surfing those crazy waves and I'd earned the right for them to ride on the bike with me and, and they wanted to do that because I, I was at that level. So. I like
0: that, that framing. I earned the right. Yeah. You did the work. You yeah. did the reps and sets. You 100%. Did, you worked what it looks like. You work backwards. You yeah. put a team together. One thing I missed in the introduction today, adding to your portfolio of your career achievements, is author. You've written a book called Surfing in the Dark, which talks about the amazing story of resilience and following your dreams, no matter the obstacles. I know you're really passionate about this. You told us when we were having a coffee before we started filming. This is the first book, I believe, that is a combination for visually impaired with Braille? It's
1: the first book ever, definitely in Australia, but we think in the world that has text and imagery in Braille, all in the one edition. So it's the first time a blind mother and a sighted child or a blind child and a sighted mother can read the same book together, which is amazing. People go, oh, that's so great, but it's actually really sad that in 2023, it's the first time that's happened.
0: Mm. It's sad, but also, you again, did anyone say you can't do that? Like, <laughs> you just, just do a book with braille. You just do a book that's got words and pictures. Well, I have to give a lot of credit to Vision
1: Australia. They were instrumental, and they, they, you know, they got the project done. But I'm very, very proud that I was, I suppose, the the feature of that book. And look, if you try, if you have a, if you have a goal, and you, and you try, and you build the right team, and you focus, and you, you know, you learn, then things happen.
0: I know that's a real passionate area for you, giving back to kids. A chip of the block, your oldest son, Max, is adopting your optimistic mindset. He was on the Today Extra show on Channel 9 and Mm -hmm. he said, Mm -hmm. when I go to sleep, I do my I'm braves. I am brave. I am intelligent. I am kind. I am happy. I am Max Formston. Mm -hmm. How beautiful is that? All my kids do that. We've actually changed
1: the second word to inquisitive because we realize that intelligent comes from... It is a, it, it's, a, it's a capacity. But to build that capacity, you need to be inquisitive. So we changed that word. But that's all my kids do that before they go to sleep every night. Um, and I ask them, don't just read it out, wrote word. Yeah, said so we talk about those values and what they mean and how they're demonstrating that in their life and how people are, how they might help other people demonstrate
0: those values. Does that come from your dad? Is that an extension of what he taught you?
1: It's an extension. So that's my iteration. But yeah, I certainly think it comes from those values that he taught me around there's no such thing as can't, but I've also learned as, a, as an athlete and as a businessman that it's it's how you do things that it's really important as well. It's not just getting the job done, but if you do it ethically and you include everybody in the right way, then it, it feels a lot better when you get to the when you end up getting to the journey, mm. the end of the journey.
0: Yeah. Do you like odd numbers or do you like even numbers? I like even numbers. Do you? I like things that are balanced. Okay, I'm an odd number guy. Okay, so if I were you, I couldn't do two. Uh, I was just wondering if Rebecca's going to get another. Conversation, you know, big bunch of flowers. Take her out to dinner. I've conquered world <coughs> cycling, I've conquered world surfing, darling. I just got a phone call. I just got a text message. I'm going to insert. What's next? Yeah,
1: people ask me that all the time. I don't know. I'm just, I'm loving. You know, the favorite thing I do right now is I coach the my Max's under nine footy team, rugby league. It's something that I can do every week. I see the boys improve every week. All the other stuff I do in my life are really big projects that take a long time. to to see a result I'm loving giving back I love coaching in whatever form that comes in whether it's executive coaching with senior executives or that's just you know coaching the under 9s 40 team I love helping people build their capacity and build curiosity to find out
0: what you know what's possible for them Matt Formson, we are at the part of our conversation where we are going to do Performance Uncovered, 13 questions. Mm -hmm. When I give the question, just hit me with the first response. This could get very dangerous. I think the first one is I'm going to do (laughs) the questions we normally ask and then you're going to throw water at me because question number one we ask everybody is, what is your favorite movie? Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I watch movies. I thought you were going to say, mate, I'm 3% impaired. What are you doing to me? No, I watch movies for sure.
1: One that my wife doesn't love it because I'm always asking questions. What happened then? What happened then? What happened then? What's the one about the blue people? Uh, Avatar. 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 Yeah. I haven't you. seen it for years, but I, I really enjoyed that. I like Transformers movies. I don't know. I feel like I've failed in that question. Let's keep, let's keep failing.
0: Question two. What song do you know all of the lyrics to?
1: Uh, Cats in the Cradle. Yeah. Cat Stevens. Oh, Cat Stevens. Yeah. Do you play? I play, yeah.
0: I, I, I knew the answer to that. I saw a sneaky little picture on Instagram as well, yeah. Is that maybe next, getting you know, a channel it into a music career? I used to, I was in a band for a while and of I played didgeridoo. You. Is there anything you don't, like, Jesus mate, like, I am going to leave this interview today. <laughs> I'm going to go for a swim after this in still water. Can't hold my breath for five or six minutes. Got no world championship cycling medals. You, you're unbelievable. Like, of course you play the guitar.
1: Well, didgeridoo is my main instrument, but I do play the guitar as well, so I play a few instruments.
0: Question number three, what food can't you get enough of?
1: Oh, Mexican.
0: Question four, what book has had the biggest impact on your life?
1: Um, Outliers.
0: Malcolm Gladwell? Yeah. Question five, what is your most meaningful possession? My house, because my family lives inside it. So what does that mean to you?
1: Oh, I just thought them, I mean, like, all I could think about was my kids and my wife. Like, that's, they're, they're the most important thing. They're my support network. They're, I, as a as a coach, as a, as a business person, as an athlete, if, if they're all successful in their lives, then that will, that will mean that I, that's, that would be the biggest achievement of my life.
0: Beautiful. You got a bit, uh, yep. There we go again. Emotional there. Yep. Grab some water. Mate,
1: I'm the, I'm the biggest emotional. Like, I'm, you could hit me with a baseball bat and I'll just grunt and I'll, I won't like it, but I'll be fine. But I can't watch an ad that's got puppies in it, that, or, or you know, like the biggest losers. Any of those shows, I, my, I have to get up and leave. My wife thinks it's the funniest
0: thing in the world. I, Very emotional. I, I get it. Yeah. I I cried. I don't know whether you've got one like this. I'd uh, been on and off with a, a ex girlfriend in Hobart many years ago when I was down there running. And Maybe I used that as a intro to cover how <laughs> emotional I was. But I cried in the Flintstones movie. Okay. When Barney got sacked, okay. but Fred did the dirty work and Barney took the rap from Mr. Slate. Okay. So I'm watching this freaking cartoon movie and I'm crying. Yeah, that'd be me. And Deb came out and said, are you all right? I went, yeah. no, Barney no. got sacked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, out of everything you do, though, you can see cycling, surfing, taking on the corporate world. Yeah. Family has a real special connection.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's where I get to, like get all my strength. When I broke the world record in cycling – it got really hard, you know, towards the three-minute mark and a four-minute effort, you don't want to do it. Your body's just telling you, stop, this is not healthy. And my son at the time, my oldest son was six weeks old. I was away from my family. And thinking about that sacrifice that they'd had not having, you know, my, my wife not having her husband there and my son not having his dad there when he's that young, that got, that got me through that last kilometre. Mm-hmm. And they've, there's been times in my life where I things are hard. I just think about them and that makes me just step up to another level.
0: Question six, what does your weekly fitness routine look like now?
1: Um, oh man, at the moment, I'm working too much, so it's probably lifting beer off the table. It's probably the, the, the most biggest activity I do. Normally, it is gym five days a week and surfing six days a week, if I can fit it in with, with work, work commitments.
0: Seven, what is your favorite failure?
1: My favorite failure is uh, all my my failed relationships before I met my wife because I learned a lot of things that I don't need to do with her.
0: Mm. Question eight, what do you do to recharge and switch off?
1: Watch TV, just spend time with my family. Yeah, just zone out.
0: Nine, we've covered a lot of this. How do you prepare for key performance moments and I'll make it specific at work. You've got a major presentation, a big interview, a big pitch, how do you prepare for that key moment?
1: the answers in the word being prepared so not going in with any questions i know that i'm 100% confident with all the the, the material and that i know everyone in my team is got is prepared for what they're going to do so i'm not i'm just i'm just 100% going back to that leadership quality of true confidence and not arrogance and not not insecurity i'm confident 100 percent confident and it doesn't matter i don't need to prepare then because i have done i've done the preparation i know exactly what's gonna what's gonna happen i know you know i can only manage variables at that point in time so i'm prepared i've got everything done let's go and let's just let's you know let's let's get it done
0: 10 what keeps you awake at night
1: oh what my next project's gonna be
0: (laughs) (laughs) have you got one
1: i've always got a few different things going like you know i'd skydiving out of space or something, I don't know. There's always things that I'm like ticking off. What could I do that someone else hasn't done? I know that's been done now, but-
0: Give um, Felix Baumgartner a ring and say, hey.
1: Yes. I, I don't know. Like it just, there's always thinking and and then questions as well. Like I sort of de- deliberate in my mind, like how, how, can, how can I be as a leader or as a coach? How can I find a way to help people to, um, develop Culture and values—they're the things that I really find. are the performance in activity is is a lot easier to to coach or to build capacity. The culture stuff is always more tricky because it's it's there's a there's a lot of different moving parts and it's it's more heart stuff. Um, so that's the stuff as well. Where I, I spend a lot of energy on these days because I just I really I think that's it's a tricky, but it's also the, the piece that gives you the biggest performance enhancement.
0: Eleven. What is your number one productivity tip? Consistency.
1: It's not taking a day off. If you really want to do something, you're not you're you're committing as much time as you physically have into that, and that could be four o'clock in the morning until eleven o'clock at night. Like, you, if you really want to do it, there's no no excuses and there's no distractions. Cons- and the consistency. That, I mean, obviously, what you're doing is important, the quality of the work. But if you're doing quality work, but you're not doing enough of it, you're not going to get the job done. So the consistency of and the hours in, in, invested is what is is I think my biggest performance tip.
0: 12, who has been your most influential mentor?
1: I'd say Tim Levy.
0: Do you know Tim? No.
1: He's a business coach, ex-TV, ex-book book writer. He's in the States. and He's been over in Dallas for oh, 10 years now, but he taught me some really awesome stuff. Actually, I, um, I don't know if it was him that told me. A, a great one that I can share with your audience, which people always say. So people say public speaking is the scariest thing, right? It's more scary than surfing. People would rather surf 50-foot waves in Nazareth than... I'll take
0: public speaking any day,
1: hundred percent. But that is the most selfish. That's very selfish, right? Because you're thinking about yourself. Mm. We all talk about what we when we're talking when doing stuff. It's all about the customer. But then when we talk about public speaking, we forget that you're speaking to an audience and they're your customer. So if you flip it and you start thinking about the audience, all of a sudden you're not. You're not worried about it anymore about you anymore because you should be thinking about how are you going to give them the best time. Time's the most valuable thing we have. They're giving you their time. So you better give them the best performance possible. And by thinking about them, it'll take away your anxiety.
0: That's a great tip. Question number 13. What is your definition of high performance? It's
1: continually improving. You're never, you're never at your highest optimal performance, right? I mean, I at cycling, I the world record that I set with Mick was definitely my highest achievement. But I continued to grow as an athlete and learn, you know, and I think it's the high performance piece is continually being inquisitive and growing in whatever you're doing. Um, so it's, you know, it's finding ways to, it's continually putting in more effort and building your capacity. I've talked about a few different things. So in my, in my sp- sporting career, at one point in time, I was 73 kilos and I could leg like press 440 kilos. I, I'm 90 kilos now and I can't even leg like press 200 kilos. I, last year, I could hold my breath for nearly six minutes. Right now, I could probably hold it for four. You know what I mean? You build these capacities in these different areas of your life, but you can't keep that capacity unless you keep up the effort. And you'll, but then you build other capacities along the journey. But but you'll diminish in those other areas. So it's the consistencies, and it's the and it's the it's the curiosity, and then you build this. Ecosystem for yourself of capacity throughout everything you do, which makes you richer as a person, and then you can build on that. You can build on that layer, the next layer, the next layer, and keep growing as a person.
0: I feel richer as a person for our conversation today. We've covered a lot. We've covered you and the frameworks that your wonderful father gave you at five, growing up and not accepting disability to start with, and then easing into that. We've spoken about. The 10 years really authentic around partying and taking other substances and trying to get away and being angry and then like literally stumbling on a bike and then winning world championships and world records and then beautiful friendships with Mick. Yeah. We then shifted to the water and spoke about how you literally took to that like a duck to water. And then Surfing Nazare. And woven throughout this has been a wonderful resilience and attitude. And I'm really looking forward to listening back to this. And, and then even in the performance uncovered, still just giving us lots of information. So loads of questions, loads of discussion, loads of answers. I'll finish with, is there a question that you would have liked me to ask that I can ask now? Or is there a question you'd like to ask me?
1: So people talk to me and they say it's amazing you've done all these things and they're wowed by it. I sometimes get a bit sad that it's it's such a revelation to people that hard work and curiosity can help you achieve things. So my question to you is: you work with lots of different people. Why are there so many people that don't? I mean, to me, it's not rocket science. All the things I do, it's just a, it's just been hard work, and it's a lot, I've been very lucky that my dad gave me the the grounding and the and those that initial. Ethos of no such thing as can't and work hard, but why? Why are why are there so many people that are that are busy but they're not achieving or and or they're busy but they're not they're not happy?
0: Mm. Can I start by saying I'm not wowed by you, I'm inspired by your message and and inspire is the Latin word inspirare, which means to breathe life into. I know you are going to breathe life into so many people on this podcast. So let's get that clear. I'm not wowed, mate. <laughs> I'm inspired. I didn't say you were. I just <laughs> said some people were. Yeah. Why do I think a lot of people don't hit their potential? I can think of a couple of reasons. Number one is role modelling. I think you really were fortunate to have a father and a mother like you had. And you obviously had some wonderful role models around sport as well. I think a lot of people don't have that role modelling. But some people have role modelling, that, and they still take a very different path. Second thing, I I, I think it's the chip. And a chip on the shoulder gets people going. And then when you connect that to drive is a higher order construct that keeps you going. So I reckon the chip got you going. And and I know you haven't sworn and I love that, but it can be that, uh, fuck you, fuck the world. And I think that's what got you started. And then that was the anger through your 20s. Then I think you found something deeper. And, And that's that purpose or that connection, I reckon you now are inspired by making a big difference to people's lives around the world. And it would be totally remiss of me to just say it's with people who are impaired vision. Your your vision, I feel, your purpose is to get people to fire up in all parts of their life. So role modeling is number one. Then two, it's that chip on the shoulder that then goes to drive. Three, I think what you have now found is this energy. This, this—it's fun. It's a passion. So they're my three answers. Without blabbing too much, have good people around you, have an inner drive, and then enjoy the process. Does that summarise you?
1: I love it, especially the enjoy the process Pete. And also, you know, I do. You're right because people say to me all the time, "Do you, is it you want to inspire people with disabilities?" And it's definitely not that. I want to inspire everybody, and I feel like you know, if I can do what I do with the disabilities that I have. Then it should inspire other people that they can do a lot better than what they're doing, you know. Or or maybe they don't want to do better. Maybe they can be happier, and that's you know there's there's two parts to it. But yeah, the happiness is I'm loving everything I do, and that's that's why it's so easy.
0: That's shown through today, it really has. So for the corporate audience listening to this, business owners listening to this who want you, they could have you. Well, they can watch your uh, series. Early next year, they can buy your books, but for people who want to get you to go and speak at their events, mm-hmm. uh, to run some programs, to do high-end coaching, mm-hmm. what's the best way for people to connect with you?
1: They can reach out directly through social media or through my agent at TLA. Um, so TLA Worldwide is my talent agent. Um, but yeah, they can reach out directly or through, th- through Jack at TLA. All
0: right, and we'll put all the details in the notes in this podcast. Matt, Matt thank you for today. Thank you for your messages. Thank you for being you. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you do next because I know there's something coming up. Oh,
1: mate, I'm, I'm, I'm loving everything I'm doing with coaching and I'm hoping that I get to do some more work in the, in the NRL space because that's uh, that's a big passion of mine. So,
0: mate, let's have a chat after we finish recording. There's two or three teams, two or three coaches, general managers in NRL I'd love to introduce you to. Only caveat, you're not going to go and talk to them before they play Manly. But, mate, all jokes aside... I really believe getting this message out there to young men, to young women, and not just in NRL. There's some other sports as well I'd love to introduce you to. I think you give perspective. I think you really help people understand about pushing through and toughness. And I think it's just a really powerful message. So, mate, I want to do everything I can to help you, not just in NRL, but some other sports as well. And Matt, thanks. Thanks for today. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate your time. Cheers. wizard we've had a bit of time out of the studio to reflect gosh did we reflect on that podcast we had a coffee you had a glass of sparkly water to fuel you up and now let's do the reflections on that form so do you want to start i'm still processing that i think mate <laughs>
2: yeah oh it's an incredible story i was i was thinking if you made a movie out of this they wouldn't believe you. Like, people would call bullshit. It's, it's crazy. Like, from playing representative rugby as a kid while blind, that's like, that's a story in itself. And then moving on to, you know, coming out of the, the spiral with drugs and alcohol and partying and then going on to be a world champion cyclist and then thinking, oh, you know, I like surfing. Why don't I just go be a world champion at that too?
0: But the start of that cycling story, when he rode with that guy from work, from Sydney to Melbourne mm. and he used both the reflections on the side of the road oh. just to pick that up in his peripheral vision but also the sound bouncing off the guidepost to work out where he was in that yeah. spatial perception that that I cannot comprehend that. <laughs> I know
2: I don't even like riding on the footpath near big trucks sometimes I can't imagine riding down the freeway with one right next to me.
0: You told me a while back you and Nikki hired a tandem bike and that almost ended in disaster. <laughs>
2: Yeah, tandem bikes are hard to control, and again, when he was talking about it, I was thinking about that, that experience too. And I can't imagine going down a hill at 100 kilometres an hour on a tandem bike. Me and Nicky were on flat ground with grass either side. If we fell over, we'd maybe get a skin knee. He was probably going to die if he hit anything.
0: The first thing that really jumped out at me, if I think about the progress of the interview was the love and the wisdom of his father. Mm, yeah. And when I asked him that, he said, no one's ever asked him that question. It just got me reflecting a lot, as a father, what I would be like in that situation. And it's, it's moved me that mm. what his dad did for Matt. Because what, what an amazing man to not tell Matt that the doctors said... Uh, you're not really going to have a proper career and you're not going to play sport yeah. Effectively, you're not going to have a normal life mm. Thank God his father did not listen
2: Oh, no, and then he, he said it again when, when he got dropped from the, the rugby team He didn't find out that he was dropped because he was blind for, I think he said till he was an adult That's, that's incredible
0: parenting There was a, a moment in there where Matt said the word can't He wasn't allowed to say the word can't no. And I didn't say in the interview, because I didn't want to interrupt his wonderful story, but I had a parallel thought, you know, I sometimes have these thought bubbles, With some of them weird, some of them might add some value. But Combank, a number of years ago had an ad, CAN. Yeah, CBA, Commonwealth Bank, was CAN, C-A-N. They missed a major opportunity. They should have had Matt Formston, seriously, like with his story now. So our friends at ComBank, if you're listening to this and you're going to reinvigorate the can ad, there's your guy. You're on a bike, but can. Can, can you surf into Nazare on a 50-foot open-face wave, toe-in surfing with no vision? Of course you can. It's Matt Formston.
2: Well, don't say too much. They're going to take your idea, and you won't get any money. They for can it. have it. They can have it. I would
0: love to see Matt just go on to more and more success. He deserves every part of it, Wiz.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like when when he was talking about the waves at Nazareth I was uh, on my phone taking notes. I did a quick Google search, and I immediately just thought, "Fuck that! <laughs> <laughs> That's insane!" I almost drowned just
0: looking at the pictures of the waves. It's an unbelievable story. It's an inspiring story. It's a story more people need to know. I have no doubt that this will be one of our most popular podcasts. I just I just know from the story. And even just the response we've had from our team when we told them about Matt, when Luba was helping mm. research, when Shannon was helping us with the flow of the interview as well. I cannot wait to see the documentary next year. I said it during the podcast, and I'll reiterate now. If anyone is listening to this and you've got a conference coming up, don't book me book Matt actually book both how's that we'll we'll do both because I'd love to share the stage with him again because he's a lot of fun he's very inspiring to work with but on a serious note if you have got a conference coming up I know Matt is wanting to grow that part of his business especially with that evolution of what he's done in the last year with Nazare just an unbelievable story if you have staff who are struggling with change, if you are looking forward in how to get your organization reinvigorated and to get out of groupthink and to to challenge the status quo, there's your guy.
2: Absolutely. If you hear him speak and you don't come away at least a little bit inspired, you should probably check that you've still got a pulse. When we wrapped up recording and Matt had gone and you came back into the room, I, I said, I think I need to do more with my life now. I feel like I haven't really done much.
0: I think we might just leave it on that, Wiz. It's a call to action for all of us. If you're sitting there thinking there's more I can do, I can stretch, I can grow, go do it.